Hello, and welcome to this UCL Lunch Hour Lecture on Managing COVID-19, How Could We Have Done and Do Better? Our speaker today is Susan Mickey, who is Professor of Health Psychology and Director of the UCL Centre for Behaviour Change. And my name is Dr. Fabiana Lorencado. I'm also a behavioural scientist and work as the research lead at the Centre for Behaviour Change. It's my absolute pleasure to introduce Professor Susan Mickey, who I've had the honour of working with for numerous years. Susan's research focuses on behaviour change in relation to health and the environment, how to understand it theoretically and apply theory to intervention development, evaluation and implementation. Her research collaborates with many disciplines from information science to environmental science, computer scientists and medicine, and covers population, organizational and individual level interventions. Susan has published over 500 journal articles and several books, including the Behavior Change Wheel Guide to Designing Interventions. And she has recently been recognized as one of the most highly cited researchers in 2022 in the fields of psychiatry and psychology. Susan will speak today about applying behavior change to managing COVID-19, an area which she has contributed to heavily in recent years. Susan served as an expert advisor to the UK government scientific advisory group in emergencies and its behavioral science subgroup. She has also participated in the Lancet COVID-19 Commission and is currently chair of, on COVID-19, sorry, and is currently chair of the World Health Organization Behavioral Insights and Technical Advisory Group. I could probably fill the remainder of this lecture talking about Susan's many accomplishments and contributions. So it's perhaps I best to leave it there and hand over to Susan. But before I do, I wanted to let you know that we will have time at the end of the lecture for questions and discussions and that you can submit your questions at any point during the talk by going to Slido. Um, so you actually type sli.do into your internet browser and you will be prompted to enter an event code, which is hashtag COVID-19, all one word with a capital C. And that will enable you to post your questions there, which I will then moderate in the discussion section. So now I'll hand over to Susan for her talk. Thanks. Thank you, Fabi. And I hope everybody can see the screen. Um, Fabi mentioned the UCL Centre for Behaviour Change uh, that she and I work at. And just to say something about uh, what we do, we um, are researchers, consultants, trainers and practitioners. We work in a very cross-disciplinary way and also a very translational way. So um, what I'm going to talk about is part of my translational work. And we run many activities. So do go onto the website if you'd like to um, hear more. Um, I think uh, Fabi's already mentioned the various uh, roles that I've played during um, the pandemic. So what I want to do in this talk is um, just say something about understanding behaviour in pandemics and then something about behavioural science advice um, and actually give a couple of examples. This is going to be quite a critical talk. An example of um, the government not following advice and an example of misusing behavioural science. And then I want to go on to just think about the nature of the science policy relationship and translating scientific advice. So human behavior, I think probably all of us uh, are very aware of, is at the heart of causing and transmitting not only pandemic infections, but also responsible for the climate emergency, uh, antimicrobial resistance, and many other um, threats and crises facing us but they're also at the heart of preventing and getting out of them. And uh, World Health Organization Director General, um, a couple of quotes from him, he is incredibly supportive of our work and says, I want to make behavioral insights an essential part of how we promote and ensure better health for all. And as the global public health leader, WHO cannot achieve its ambitious goal of transforming global health and the health of more than 7 billion people without a clear understanding of people's health-related behaviours. So that's my starting point. So behavioural science matters, and I say potentially, because it depends on how it's, how it's um, communicated, how it's used, but potentially for enabling people to adhere to advice and rules, for developing the best policies, and also for implementing policies. They depend on human behaviour. And whose behaviours are we talking about? Often people think just in terms of citizens, the general population, but also think about the behaviour of health professionals, of employers, service and environmental planners, business leaders, policymakers at national and local level, politicians, and the list can go on. 
And uh, this image here shows a kind of network that all these groups of people are inter interrelated and really important to understand that wider system. So if we just think about systems behavior and pandemics here, um, key areas we're all very familiar with, the kind of personal protective behaviors, uh, adherence to public health, health measures, and I'll talk a bit about the test, trace and isolate system, uh, restrictions, including border controls and lockdowns and adhering to the various rules. And finally, vaccination is only as effective as the extent to which it's actually uh, taken up. Very important to think about behaviour occurring in context. It's so different depending on the population, uh, the particular local culture in any country, the particular culture within the world. And we know that uh, transmission is greater, for example, in overcrowded housing, unventilated workplaces. So people's physical environments, also social environments, depending on you know, people getting together in large events, uh, talking or singing loudly. And then we've got these complex often systems of transmission. So obviously people traveling between communities uh, from one care home to another, for example, from hospital into care homes, we, we remember that only too well, it's quite a tragic. But also uh, they can be very complex. So interactions between children and teachers, schools and households, then households and other sectors. So in order to enable behavior change, we need to actually understand behavior. And in order to do that, we need a model of behavior. And what I'm going to present to you is um, probably the simplest yet a comprehensive model of behavior. And it's called COMBI. And this states that behavior occurs as an interaction between three necessary conditions. So here's a little thought experiment for you. What needs to be in place for behavior to happen? Something beginning with C, something beginning with O, and something beginning with M. Unless all these three things are in place, uh, a behavior won't happen. So here we go. First is capability. If people don't have uh, the knowledge and skills, the psychological capability or the physical capability to enact a behavior, it won't happen. On its own, it's not enough. One also needs to have the opportunity uh, for any behavior to occur. Uh, this is the physical opportunity, but also the social opportunity. And then finally, you can have all the capability and opportunities in the world, and we're probably all too familiar with this. And I'm sure you've all guessed what the M is. We also need to have motivation. So you need to be able to do it. You need to have the opportunity to do it and you need to be motivated to do it. Um, and indeed, in the um, jurisprudence system in law, these are things you need to prove to prove that somebody committed a crime. And as you can see, there are um, various kinds of arrows linking these different um, aspects of uh, behavior, thinking, cognition, um, emotion, etc. And um, they are themselves in a system. So changing one thing can have knock-on effects on the other. And this is very useful when you're trying to enable behavior change. I mentioned about the psychological or physical ability. When it comes to motivation, we have the um, reflective uh, top-down mechanisms that activate or inhibit our behavior, the kind of conscious decisions and choices we make. And I'm sure we think that that guides pretty much all of our behavior, but actually we're wrong. A lot of our behavior is a result of uh, much more automatic mechanisms, more ancient bits of our, our brain. So um, our emotions, our habits, our drives, our impulses, really important to understand both of these. And then the opportunity. Um, I mentioned the physical environment, but people's social environment are really important. And we're all very aware of what a difference it makes in terms of do you or do you not use a face mask in an indoor crowded place. Um, for most people, it really depends on how many people around them are also uh, doing the same behavior. Now, if you want to find out more about this, because within this, this 40 minutes, I'm only really giving you headlines, um, the paper on the left published in Implementation Science about um, the COMBI model and something called the behavior change wheel that allows one to move from this model of behavior to designing interventions and policies 
um, is, is published open access in, in the journal Implementation Science. There's also a book. But um, I'd also really recommend on the right hand here, a user-friendly guide that's available. Just go onto the Centre for Behaviour Change website and um, there's one we were commissioned for um, local government, one for national government. I, I think the one for national government's um, the more up-to-date one, but they're, they're both good. Okay, so back to um, COVID and um, the advice, scientific advice. Uh, I'm sure you're all aware of SAGE, uh, the Scientific Advisory Group in Emergencies. And actually, I was on it in 2009 when it was a very small group of about 20 of us. And um, I set up the first behavioural group because I managed... I was the only behavioural and social scientist on there, but I managed to persuade them that um, behaviour is really important and needed its own group in addition to the modelling group and the clinical and, and virology group. So now it's large, very large and complex. Um, I think there's over 100 people participated at some point in it, uh, have, has many, many groups and individuals feeding into it. And there's absolutely huge scientific talent on SAGE and on its sub subcommittees um, really impressive um, the way it worked was in responsive mode so um, we only worked to commissions from the government we weren't able to um, say we think we should advise on this I would say another um, issue for for the for the model was there were delay delays sometimes weeks between us completing work and a report and it going up onto the um, website and the whole translational pathway uh, wasn't transparent. Um, as, a, as a behavioral group, I think many of us saw a big discrepancy between what we're advising and, and what was um, coming from government, but who knows um, where, where the blocks were to that. Um, was it getting through? Was it getting through and being understood? Was it understood, but um, wasn't welcome? Um, we just don't know. Um, we, uh, the behavioural science group of SAGE published about 30 published reports. And up here is just the, the last one, which was about sustaining behaviours in the long term after rules were uh, taken away. Um, and in terms of things that I think we did that made some kind of positive impact, um, I think measures we judged to be harmful were limited or delayed. So, uh, for example, the vaccine passports were more limited than originally conceived and um, the monetary fines for self-isolation were delayed. We had more liberal social bubbles, I think, than might otherwise have been the case. Um, there was a community champion programme um, that was designed and rolled by colleagues on our group and um, led to higher vaccine uptake amongst minoritised groups. And we did achieve some evaluations of behavioural interventions. So before I go on and uh, give some criticisms, I did want to highlight um, some of the positives. Um, so our general view was to increase adherence to public health measures. Uh, the government should take a positive approach, avoid blame, focus on enabling people rather than relying on enforcement. And again, thinking about this, this model, really thinking about motivation, thinking about giving people opportunities and ensuring they have the correct uh, knowledge and skills. So some of the themes um, under capability, we focused on helping people identify and manage risky situations. And also we targeted intensive and tailored information where needed. With motivation, we um, these were all advice. We advised giving positive feedback and emphasizing that everyone has an important part to play. And in terms of opportunity, where restrictions were suggested, we um, suggested promoting and supporting positive alternative opportunities and help people to change their environments and form new social customs and advice to target practical support where needed. Okay, so now I'm going to go on to a, a couple of areas uh, where I think um, things could have been done better. So, um, the first is test, trace and isolate. Um, now, here's uh, Tedros again, the Director General of the WHO, who really stressed the importance for countries to test, isolate and trace new cases to suppress the spread of the virus. This is really seen as the cornerstone of pandemic management, which is why I want to give it some attention here. Now, every single part of this depends on behaviour. Getting tested, getting tested 
quickly and the right kind of test, registering your test results, providing information about your contacts and isolating if one has symptoms or a positive result. All of these things are human behaviours. And modelers estimated that in order for this system to be effective, we need more than 80% adherence by the general population. Now, um, we were fortunate right from the beginning of the pandemic to have been awarded uh, several years ago an NIHR grant for a nationwide weekly survey looking at behaviour and influences on behaviour. Um, and this was a sleeping grant, so it meant that we had been able to get ethics approval and pilot things and keep it up to date um, and therefore able to start, you know, really very soon after the pandemic started. Um, and uh, I don't know, we published maybe 15, 20 papers from, from this survey. Um, but here's one I want to talk about in relation to Test, Trace and Isolate, which we um, published uh, early on. So we had, uh, for this data set, uh, 50 almost 54,000 symptomatic people. And what we found that people uh, reported, fewer than 50% um, reported isolating. That's when they were symptomatic and less than 30% reported requesting a test. So this was extremely concerning. We fed this uh, information through into SAGE. Um, we also, um, you know, important to raise the question, well, is this because people aren't motivated or is it because they don't have the opportunity? Now, um, uh, Helen Ward and colleague, colleagues uh, looked at um, this according to um, income levels and found that 87% were willing to self-isolate across all income levels. But those with the lowest household income were three times less likely to be able to self-isolate and six times less likely to be able to work from home. So this looks like it's much more of an opportunity than a motivational issue. And in our own data, we found that uh, predictors were having a job with a low income and financial hardship. And the reasons that were given uh, for not isolating were having caring responsibilities outside the home, needing to go out to get provisions or insecure work, um, income or employment. And uh, what did SAGE uh, advise? They, they, and it's in red at the bottom here, they advise um, both providing enough financial support so that people uh, were able, financially able to uh, self-isolate and also um, tangible non-financial support, practical support. Now, what happened? Um, unfortunately, they responded as if it was a problem of motivation rather than opportunity. So. Um, Eventually, only £500 uh, for a whole isolation period was offered, and this was less than the minimum wage. Only eight of those um, were eligible, and of those who applied, only 30% received it. Also, um, very unfortunately, and we weren't consulted on this, uh, a £10,000 fine was instituted if you were caught not isolating. Now, what do we think the unintended consequences of this might be? Any behavioural scientist um, could have said uh, that given the, all the different behaviours I talked about, fewer people would get tested. Why would you get tested if you can't afford to stay at home? You certainly can't afford a £10,000 fine. Would you want to give your friends and family who are in similar situations, um, put them in a similar situation? You'd think fewer people would give their contacts, fewer people download the app, especially disadvantaged groups. And what we, uh, as I said before, not only less than 30% said they got tested, but an evaluation of mass testing in Liverpool found that only 8% of disadvantaged um, communities got tested, even when this was local free testing on the doorstep. And these were some of the um, headlines at the time, just can't afford to self-isolate, too scared to get tested, um, et cetera. OK, so um, I think you can see that uh, there was a gap there between the kind of behavioural advice that was being given and the policies that we were seeing at the other end. Now I want to share with you uh, an example of actually misusing behavioural science. And this is the idea of behavioural fatigue. If, if I was with you in person, I'd ask you to put up your hands to find out how many of you have heard about behavioural fatigue. Um, so this 
I don't know where this came from. But anyway, um, back in March 2020, um, Chris Whitty said there is a risk that if we go too early, i.e. we lock down too early, people will understandably get fatigued and it will be difficult to sustain this over time. Now, the science of behaviour matters um, because uh, this is Professor Neil Ferguson, who is on the UK SAGE modelling group, um, who estimated from their work that uh, had we enforced UK lockdown even one week earlier, it could have saved 20,000 lives. Now, there was a lot of uh, disquiet about this at the time. Here's an open letter signed by about 600 behavioural scientists. It didn't come my way, so presumably many, many more than that would have signed if they'd come across it. And a quote from, from their letter saying, if, quote, behavioural fatigue truly represents a key factor in the government's decision to delay high visibility interventions, we urge the government to share an adequate evidence base in support of that decision. If one is lacking, we urge the government to reconsider these decisions. Now, unfortunately, behavioural scientists were blamed um, for this delay. And uh, Dominic Cummings, who I'm sure you all remember, uh, when he was giving testimony um, to the uh, one of the parliamentary select committees, um, attributed the delay to charlatan behavioural scientists were, with his um, choice words and said that, that we were saying the British public will not accept a lockdown or what was thought of as an East Asian style track and tra trace type system. Well, <laughs> what did we actually say? Nobody said that. Behavioural science did not advise that people wouldn't accept restrictions. And, and you can see the evidence for that both in uh, the SPI-B, the behavioural science minutes and the SAGE minutes. So it just wasn't a behavioural science term. It was never discussed by our committee. Uh, there's no measure of this. It's not included in any theories. There's no evidence base on it. It was never mentioned by any of us in discussions or our reports or our advice. And um, indeed, uh, myself and two other colleagues from UCL, Robert West and Nigel Harvey, uh, wrote um, an article on this concept of fatigue. Um, and fatigue is very different than motivation. Um, you know, you can be tired, but be highly motivated to do something, or you could be not at all tired and um, not at all motivated to do something. I don't know if I got that the right way around, but you know what I mean. You can be fatigued and not motivated or not fatigued and motivated. And it does matter because these things are very different psychological entities with very different implications for how you then help manage a situation. And in fact, that week, the uh, editor wrote an editorial to go along with it, saying a flawed idea central to a flawed pandemic response. So I know in the last bit of this uh, talk, want to go on to think about uh, what the responsibility of science should be. I think you've probably detected uh, some degree of frustration. Um, I mean, we were working evenings and weekends in addition to very busy day jobs and on the behavioral science uh, group there was probably about 20 to 30 of us working full time to get these um these reports out so quite de demoralizing when um they didn't seem to be uh, translating now philip ball who's a, a journalist uh, wrote this in in, uh, in the guardian um imploring back in may 2021 that um we shouldn't wait for the government inquiry, but UK scientists should conduct their own inquiry. And he says, if the science was not followed, scientists have a right and an obligation to ask why not. They should not passively resign themselves to the untapped status assigned to them by Winston Churchill. Probably many of you remember the, the um, quote early on <clears throat> that the prime minister and others were very fond of saying, oh, we're just following the science. Um, but when it became clear, very, very evident that, that they weren't, um, that phrase got, got dropped. Now, uh, I'm just going to give two different um, sort of concepts from two ex-chief, or I should say former government chief scientific advisors. So Sir David King here, who is very keen on being open and transparent about science, um, that scientific advisors should act as bridges between current science and the political system. Um, so not just a one-way route, but a bridge. And the advisors are including advising government, but also informing the public. 
and um, I think very keen on the, the independence of that. And again, we remember from our screens the site of uh, Boris Johnson being flanked by a couple of um, scientists and you know, the questions raised about how independent all of that was. So Mark Walpert, on the other hand, um, is, uh, I think, advocates a much um, clearer divide between scientists and policy and a much more circumscribed role for scientists. So scientists advise, but politicians, politicians decide. That is fundamental, that almost the two should never, never meet, um, although not literally, but, you know, uh, very different compartments. Um, so, so what should the relationship be? And for decades now, I've um, been a formal and informal advisor to various aspects of, of government. So it's something I thought a lot about, but never so much as over this last two years. So on the one hand, um, scientists are not elected officials and are often unfamiliar with the policy context. On the other hand, evidence doesn't implement itself. Um, there's there's a journal called Implementation Science. We know that if you just give a report to someone or just give guidelines without anything underpinning that or wrapped around it to help the translation of it into policy and practice, it doesn't happen, often doesn't happen. I also know policymakers often don't understand the scientific advice, nor how best to translate it. Because we weren't working with policymakers, we weren't having conversations with them even. It meant we don't know uh, the extent to which they understood what we we're saying, were we expressing it in the best way? Um, and then um, the whole translation of evidence, implementation of evidence, are themselves the subject of scientific inquiry. So there's a whole knowledge and theoretical base about how to do this um, that could be drawn on um, for this purpose. So questions I'd asked, shouldn't social scientists be asked to advise on the translation process itself? And shouldn't scientists work in partnership with policy makers at all stages along the translational pathway? Um, and I know when um, I think I've had most impact in terms of policy, it's been when I've had really good relationships and close working relationships with policy makers. Um, so this, this uh, mantra of scientists advise and politicians decide. Now, I think it was sometimes used to protect scientists from being blamed, but I think we do need to think about the principle of it. And I think it is an artificial divide. Um, as I said, there's a, a translational pathway, there's a science of implementation. And um, from the journal here, um, they wrote an editorial about implementation science in the times of COVID-19 and made the obvious point. It is never sufficient to produce and disseminate information for changing behavior, organizations and, and, and systems. Um, and, you know, that's really all we did was just provide and disseminate information. Um, so I want to end on um, thinking about the many ways in which scientists um, can inform policy. Um, there's not just the formal government structures, but there's individual relationships, uh, which many of us had with individual uh, politicians and local and national government and people involved in the whole sort of policy landscape. There's use of press, broadcasting and social media, not always a happy place um, because um, things could often be misreported or sometimes be misreported. And then ad hoc and informal groups and networks. So many of these, and um, I want to say something about independent SAGE, which I think is um, probably um, the most well-known. Now this was set up by Sir David King in early 2020, following the secrecy of SAGE, because at the beginning, the membership wasn't published, the minutes weren't published, the reports weren't published. Um, and having worked with um, Blair and with Brown and worked in a way in which he could be independent and speak directly to the public, he felt that this wasn't right. And so I was one of about a dozen originally um, scientists covering many different disciplines. Uh, public health, mathematical modelling, uh, behavioural science, virology, epidemiology, etc. And we originally um, were just going to have one broadcast, but there were so many people watching it and uh, such clamour for us to um, do more that actually we've, we've kept going uh, on a weekly basis um, up until 
now. I think we'll probably end at, at the end of uh, February. Um, and this is a very complementary group uh, to SAGE. So the aim is to, to put scientific evidence and debate into the public domain on the basis that openness and transparency leads to better understanding and better decision making. And also the view of those of us participating, that it's the responsibility of scientists and those with specialist knowledge to engage with the public and policymakers in order to ensure that science benefits all of society. Now, this might be a discussion point, and I'd be interested in hearing your views. We were very agile, proactive, uh, a small group. Um, as I said, every Friday, one o'clock on YouTube, you can still, still watch it, although we're not meeting this Friday. Um, we uh, had these live stream briefings where we had every week a database update, uh, invited guests on specialized topics, questions and answers with the public, politicians and the press, especially at the beginning, politicians and the press were coming on very regularly. Now it's the public, but we have public questions every, every single week and we've published more than 80 reports um, on the website. And because we're a small group and um, we could be proactive, we were able to really respond to you know, all the emails we were getting, the questions that were coming through in terms of what was it people wanted to know about. Um, there's a website, do go on it. Um, there's a, a Twitter account. And um, yeah, every time, because it, it's quite exhausting because we've got a behavioral group too uh, that feeds into it, meets on a Tuesday evening. We eat, meet on a Thursday evening to plan the Friday lunchtime. So that's all in addition to everything else we do. But every time we've said like we should stop, um, we look at the viewing figures and, you know, we're still getting up to 20,000 people uh, watching. But, um, you know, I, th I think we will, um, when the, the crowdfund um, ceases at the end of February, we'll probably stop then unless there's a new crisis. But do go on the website and, and all the old the reports and all the old um, um, broadcasts are all on there. So just to conclude, um, I think having the sort of concept of this hard border between science and policy, scientists and policymakers can be unhelpful. And I think having a model where it is just, you know, the chief scientific advisor, chief medical officer going and meeting with, you know, prime minister, etc., and not having other uh, interactions between scientists and policymakers is something that could be improved in the future. Um, I think that engagement should be at all stages, uh, you know, right at the beginning when we're thinking about, you know, what are the priorities, what do you need to know, um, and you know, what areas of, of um, advice would you like? And kind of two-way iterative communication that I think we, you know, there was nobody studying what happened um, over this last period of, of SAGE. I mean, nobody knew it was going to go on for so long, but I think it, I think it, there should be um, somebody there who's actually looking at what happens to all those reports? Which committees do they go to? Are they discussed? Um, are they understood? Do people object to, to something there? Um, or, you know, is the reason for the non-translation um, of a lot of the advice um, because of the particular ideology of the government at the time? It would be good to know that because a lot of taxpayers' money goes into this, a lot of scientific time goes into it, um, and it would be good to learn the lessons. And if we don't study something and you don't collect data on something, then all one's got is people's testimony and would be so much better if there's you know somebody embedded looking at the discussions the reports etc as it worked its way through government channels and and finally i think scientists have a responsibility to not only engage with advising government with society more broadly including the public and and ucl's got an amazing tradition of doing this and a, a wealth of ways in which it does engage with the public of which this lecture um, is just but one so in terms of the future, if I've got time, um, I think that we need to build, coordinate and use behavioural science expertise as we move forward to this long term risk management approach, kind of taking the approach to manage COVID as we manage road safety. Uh, we don't just leave it uh, to individuals to get on with it, um, because at the moment we still got, you know, hundreds of people dying, you know, kind of every month. We've got lots of long COVID. I think it's um, one and a half to two million people with long COVID. So, you know, the economy is actually suffering now because of the uh, so many people are not in the workforce 
as a result of long COVID, as, as along the bird, as a result of the burden on the NHS, um, meaning that there's a lot of people with ill health who are not working, who could be working. Um, I think we should invest in achieving a better understanding of key behaviours across different contexts. There's a whole other talk I could give about the inequalities um, that have been exacerbated during uh, COVID, partly as a result of the nature of the virus and transmission, partly as a result of um, government policy. Um, and imply, apply this understanding across society. So, you know, risk-reducing behaviours is not just us, us, to us as individuals, but the responsibility of all, including politicians, health professionals, scientists and citizens. Um, this was the final report, actually, that I led on, um, that is um, really advising government how to enable and support people to manage risk. Unfortunately, I can't see any of that actually put into practice. Uh, we've also published a summary of that in the British Journal of Health Psychology, but that's the URL if people are interested in that. Uh, acknowledge uh, amazing colleagues, uh, both in SAGE and in Independent SAGE. Um, it was an absolute privilege to work with them um, over this last two years and also funders of uh, my own research. And just if anybody is interested in more finding out more about behavioural science um, and behaviour change more generally, um, we run a, a four week online uh, course. And I think the next one's uh, starting in January, February. But again, come to the Centre of Behaviour Change uh, website and then you'll um, find the details there. Thank you very much. And I hope I've left time for questions and a good discussion. Thank you very much, Susan, for your excellent talk. And yes, um, you have left plenty of time for questions and discussions, great. which is great. great. Um, just as a reminder to everyone, um, if you have any questions for Susan, please enter them on Slido. So to submit a question on Slido, you just type sli.do into your browser and enter the um, event code, which is hashtag COVID-19, one word with a capital C. Um, we do have a couple of questions, though, to get us um, started, Susan. Um, so what do you think we should be doing now to minimize the chance of another wave and overburdening the NHS? Um, well, I suppose it's it's who's the we. <laughs> and I suppose it goes back to what I was saying about everybody having um, a responsibility. So the, there's the we, the government. Uh, there's we, for example, employers. Uh, there's we, all of us as individuals. Um, but maybe if we start with us as individuals, um, you know, we we still have what, one in 40 or so people are infected um, and we need to get that right down if we're going to prevent long COVID, which is really ruining a lot of lives um, and, and really get, get on top of this. Um, and I, I would I think the main things to think about is the, the fact that it's airborne. Um, and the fact that it's uh, transmitted in airborne fashions means the best way we can keep our transmission down is to think about the indoor air quality. Um, so wherever one can ensure good ventilation or if ventilation is not possible, um, HEPA filter. Um, if you're an indoor uh, space and the air quality is not good and you can find out whether it's good or not by um, carbon dioxide monitors um, to wear a mask, a face mask, and um, an FFP2 one, a well-fitting one. The, the surgical masks um, were okay at the beginning um, when people think it's mainly droplets, but now with Omicron, it, it's really not useful. You have to have a mask that is really tight fitting, a good seal all the way around. So those are things that, um, that, that one can do. Um, obviously, if people uh, are able to avoid um, you know, enclosed spaces like some kinds of transport, that's all better. So walking and cycling and working from home if you can are all things that can help. Um, employers also, I think, really need to pay attention to um, indoor air quality. And in some countries, you know, it's, it's um, illegal to um, have poor air quality. Um, you know, we go into work during the day or we go into recreational facilities or whatever, expecting not to be poisoned by the water we drink. We should expect not to be poisoned by the air we breathe, but that's not the case at the moment. Um, so I think everybody, um, all employers and people with, you know, running um, different events with, with shared space should um, think about that. 
but it does need um, resources. It, it needs, it needs um, first of all, to have the requirements, to have the rules. Um, people need the uh, infrastructure. They often need the, the finance to be able to do it. Um, then there needs to be inspection. I mean, there's been lots of contravention um, of, of health and safety over this last two years, but there's so little now in the way of um, inspection that, that nothing much is done about it. Um, and, and as I say, in other countries, they you know, have all these things in, in place. Um, and so all of that's needed from, from employers. And then um, in terms of what the government can do and, and different kinds of authority, I, th I think keeping, um, you know, <laughs> keeping people aware that this continues to be a big problem, you know, that, that the narrative that it's all over um, is such a dangerous one, or the narrative that's only flu, again, such a dangerous one, um, because it's not helpful. Um, and who knows what's going to happen in the future, but the main problem as well, or the two main problems about allowing these sort of levels to carry on, three main problems, the more I think about it, the more problems will be, is, um, as I said, you know, people are getting sick, people are getting long-term disability, people are dying who don't need to, if that was lower. Um, as I said, also, it takes up valuable NHS space. And so these awful waiting lists um, are, are not, you know, could be reduced if COVID demand was reduced. Um, and thirdly, it, the more that you have um, the virus going from one person to another, the more chance there is for new variants to emerge. The more chance, the more variants that emerge, the more chance there is to be one that escapes vaccines. Already, these Omicron um, variants we have now um, are escaping vaccines more than they did before, but thank goodness vaccines are still having an effect. Um, but that might not be the case. So for all those reasons, we really should be keeping it down. And it's, and it's not that difficult. Um, I mean, personally, I always will wear um, a face mask in public transport, um, in shops, unless you know it's a small shop and the doors open, um, and we'll select where I go in terms of uh, ventilation. And fingers crossed, I haven't had it yet. Um, but you know, I, I think those are the kind of things we we should still be doing now. Great, thank you, Susan. Um, so we've got a few questions coming in now. Um, so quite a popular question um, has been, are there other countries we can learn from in terms of the government following the advice of behavioral scientists? Yes, there are, there are a lot of countries that did a lot better than the UK. I mean, unfortunately, UK is um, quite an outlier on how badly we did, which given, you know, that we were had such a great um, public health and NHS and, uh, you know, science, science and technology um, record is a huge shame. And I do hope the public inquiry, you know, does properly get to, to grips with that. But there's been a lot of reports written already. Um, there were the, the countries that did the best uh, were in Southeast Asia, where they've had um, experience of SARS um, and um, just put all these measures into place really quickly. So, um, you know, South, South Korea and uh, China and um, some of the other Southeast Asian uh, states, um, also some of the Northern European uh, countries um, did well. And those countries did well because they took a kind of all society um, view of things and, and sort of shared the responsibility. You know, everybody was doing their bit. Um, they were very coordinated um, and um, the test, trace and isolate system, they got going extremely quickly and efficiently. Um, and also, you know, did have um, a view of, I mean, it was called different things, but, um, you know, some people call it zero COVID. I mean, it doesn't mean zero, um, but like driving it down, that, that is the ambition, rather than just accepting that we're going to live with it um, at a certain level. It's going to be interesting to see what, what China, um, what happens in China, because China's done incredibly well in terms of low death rates and low transmission. Um, but by, you know, doing these local lockdowns, um, and at the moment they've got a big um, outbreak, I think about several thousand cases in Beijing, um, and once one gets that sort of level, it's it's difficult um, to to do that, and 
Um, also, you know, there's always a, a tension uh, in any country about, um, you know, how much do you reduce contact between people uh, to drive it, drive it down. I mean, unfortunately, um, China, for various, um, you know, sort of cultural reasons, not a lot of the elderly people are vaccinated. So this is why they've had to keep going with this this policy. Um, so yeah, anyway, th those are the kind of things that uh, people do. The other thing is trust. I'm, I haven't mentioned this. Trust in government is absolutely huge, and there are as a factor in terms of being associated with how well countries have done. Um, and there are several studies now looking at different countries across the world and, and the level of trust. And where you have high trust in government, um, people adhere much more willingly, not surprisingly. Um, and the adherence to these kinds of rules, which are there to you know, prevent transmission, um, that did make a difference. So I think there's a lot to learn um, from, from trust, who's trusted, um, how trust comes into being, how trust is lost. I mean, if you look at the data, the UK government did have quite a high trust at the beginning, um, and but lost it. And once you lose trust, it's actually very difficult to, to get it back again. Luckily, scientists, um, as well as obviously health professionals, uh, were trusted and, and there's been a high level of trust has, has been maintained. Um, so I think very important to think about who's doing the communicating. Personally, I think if um, after the beginning part of this, if the, um, our leading scientists had been communicating directly with the public, um, there would have been more trust in, in what they were saying. Um, but these are all things that uh, really need to be looked at um, in detail. Great, thank you. Um, the next question is whether you have collected data and evidence to submit to the government inquiry on the handling of COVID-19. Um, See, so I've, I was asked to make a submission, have, have made a submission, as I think a lot of people who are on SAGE and Independent SAGE um, have been asked to do and ask, answering various questions. So um, it wasn't a question of uh, collecting data in order to do that. It's more a question of um, bringing together the evidence um, in order to answer the questions. Uh, so um, the, the first submission was really about um, looking at you know, the advice with, that was given, looking at our experiences, reflecting, um, thinking about you know, what worked, what didn't work so well. Um, so I presume the next stage will be um, the inquiry will then look at people's submissions and ask people to come and um, give evidence. But as I said, it, it would have been so much better if the whole advisory process had been studied um, in itself. And for the for the added amount of investment that would have taken, I think that would have been hugely worth it. Agreed. So we've got quite a few questions coming in now. Um, so Bobby, I'm just going to shut a, a blind because of um, <laughs> because you've been blinded by in. the light there. Okay. Um, I'll read the question out in the meantime. Um, so was it difficult having a four nation approach to managing the pandemic? So different areas of the UK having their own rules and managing that messaging. Um, it's difficult to know through which lens to answer that question. Um, I certainly know colleagues who are um, advising um, in Scotland, advising the government in Scotland. And from their reports, it was a very, different experience and situation. So there were um, a much closer um, contact between the uh, scientists, the policymakers, and indeed the politicians, you know, all sitting around a table uh, together. And I think much more sense that scientists had been heard. Um, I'm not, I don't, I don't have any, um, I don't know about the uh, Welsh or Northern Ireland situation. Um, so that's one part of my answer. The other is, um, it wasn't just the four nations, but also we had uh, a time when different regions were doing different things. And I think that one of the issues is, is um, to do with complexity. You know, when things become very complex and different things are happening in different places and there's chopping and changing, um, then I think, it becomes difficult for people to understand what's happening, why it's happening. Trust can go down, adherence goes down. You know, going back to that 
you know, capability, which includes knowledge and the relationship between that and, and motivation um, and then people's um, behavior. And so the fact that the word, you know, it's the same science, you know, those four nations are, are not so different that there needs to be different um, recommendations, but it's an example where they were, the science was being used and interpreted differently um, according to the politics of the situation. But of course, if people see something happening in one place and not another, they'll say, well, why is that? And it's quite undermining also the science because they'll say, well, you know, kind of then what is the point of science if different things are happening in different places? Um, so I think one of the, you know, I would say one of the lessons to be learned is there should be much more cohesion um, across the country. And it wasn't just the nations. If you remember also, there was, I think, um, Manchester, you know, there were different regions um, where uh, things were being, being done differently. Um, another thing that's incredibly important that wasn't done, it was done well right at the beginning and then not done, is, not, is to say not just what people should be doing, but why they should be doing that. Giving a rationale so people understand the principles. You know, what, what I think government should be much more focused on is really helping people to understand what's the nature of the virus, what's the nature of transmission, why is it we need to keep it down, you know, how should we be doing that? And to this, to this day, you know, people are still not understanding some of the basics um, of, of transmission. Um, and I think that if across the whole of the UK, there'd been some key messages, um, you know, that were being given out and people were being talked, talked to, talked with, explained why different measures were being put in place, um, then I think there would have been much more trust and belief in it because it, it did appear to become more politicized uh, to some extent. The other thing that I didn't have time to talk about um, in this talk, is the issue about, um, you know, <laughs> we're, we're all in the same storm, but we're in different boats. Um, you know, UK is an incredibly um, varied country in terms of the population, really different communities. And, um, you know, we know from behavioural science that it's really, really important how one communicates, who communicates, through what media do you communicate, to different groups and to make sure it's tailored to those groups um, and that it isn't just a top-down communication which is really what was happening one of the things we said in so many reports that we just stop saying it again just refer back to our old reports was listen to communities consult with communities engage with communities this idea of co-production co-creation of policies and strategies and the reason for doing that is firstly you'll get much better policies and strategies because it'll be informed by people's lived experiences, which, you know, policy makers and politicians, however well-meaning they are, don't have. And secondly, you'll have more buy-in. Those communities will feel part of the process. They will feel a responsibility for making things work if they've been part of developing those policies. So that's, I mean, that's something that really, really should have been done. Um, and I think it was done, you know, maybe better in in, in Wales and Scotland than it was in, in England. Okay, thank you. Um, we have quite a few questions about perhaps changing the behaviour of policymakers. Um, and so, and how you might approach that and engage with policymakers differently. So one question, for example, is perhaps understanding the behaviour of policymakers in such a rapidly evolving situation is vital. What can we do to make them listen to behavioural scientists? And if you were in this same situation again for a future wave or another outbreak, how might you try to approach and engage with um, policymakers differently to make sure they listen? <laughs> well, on, on the first couple, I'll have a go, and then you can remind me about the third if I don't, I don't answer that. Um, actually, we, ha we have uh, the, the Centre for Behaviour Change runs an MSc in behaviour change. And one of the um, sessions I do with the students is, is all about um, working with policymakers and actually applying that combi model to policymakers um, and, and thinking about um, exactly that, enabling, um, enabling policymakers uh, in terms of their thinking and um, their motivation and their behaviour. Um, so several things I'd say. One is absolutely key to have good relationships, good rapport uh, with, with policymakers. A second thing is to understand their incentives. 
their agendas, where they're coming from, what are they trying to achieve? Because unless you can be useful and helpful to them, why should they listen to you? Um, so that's really important. And obviously that, that can come through doing background um, research on websites, talking to people who've worked with um, policymakers or politicians before, um, and also it grows um, through the, the, the relationship. Um, the other thing is um, often, I mean, again, UCL Public Policy Unit here is um, fantastic and does lots of excellent enabling and training of um, researchers and academics to communicate with, with policymakers. But in general, we haven't been taught how to do it. And we talk with too much jargon, it's too complex. And so one of the things that's really important is to really simplify, not, not to dumb down, but to simplify the complexity of what we're saying. So, and that's why policymakers throughout government love that combi model um, because you know everybody can work with that. Um, but the good thing about it is you start broad, you know, so you don't you do think about opportunity as well as motivation, as well as capability. And that's not dumbed down, it's just simplified. Um, I showed you a little way in which it gets more complicated. And then there's layers of making all of it much more complicated. So, you know, there's layers and layers of complexity going out, but it starts simple. Um, and, you know, when we, you know, write, say, policy briefs, really brief, you know, policymakers don't have much time and also they need to make decisions often quite quickly. So you need to make what you say or what you write really accessible. And um, one of the things as a result of, um, NIHR Behavioural Science Policy Research Unit that uh, both Fabian and I are involved with is we wrote a, uh, a guide to writing briefs for policymakers that was published, um, I think it was earlier this year. Again, that's free to download on the Centre for Behaviour Change uh, website. So I think that may be touched on the first couple of questions, but Fabi, did it answer the third one? I think it did. And in, okay. in the interest of time, I might just shift to one final question yep. on a slightly different topic. Um, before we wrap up. So um, moving to talk about face masks. So the messaging on masks seems to have changed from protect yourself and others to protect yourself if you want to. So how do you, um, which it. is true even on the tube at the moment, it says wear a mask if it means you might feel more comfortable traveling these days, it's quite a shift. Um, so how would you reverse this? Gosh, that's so interesting. I think we can have a whole talk just on that. What we know, the evidence shows that one of the great motivators of people was about protecting um, their loved ones, the community, the NHS. Um, that is a, a driver for people because often people would think, I'm young, I'm healthy, I'm not at risk, but would actually, you know, kind of engage with certain behaviors like face masks because they recognize it will protect other people that are more vulnerable. And you don't know who's vulnerable, you don't know who's got what underlying. Um, conditions. So first of all, that's a huge shame that that's taken away. Um, but it, it, it reflects, I would suggest, a sort of individualistic kind of ideology rather than a more collective one. That was, that was another thing about the countries that did better. They have a much more collective um, basis of their society. The, the phrase, if you want to, now this again feels like libertarian, you know, like it's up to you you know, it, it, it's, it, it's a choice. I mean, kind of what's the point of saying that really? Um, I think that it's much better to give people the information. You know, there's now really good evidence that wearing face masks, um, whether it's in, you know, schools, whether it's in hospitals, other kinds of um, indoor spaces, massively reduces um, transmission. Give people that information. Give them the information about if you're going to wear a face mask, this is the kind of face mask. And I would say, because we're still in a pandemic, we're still not out of the woods, encourage people to wear face masks. Now, just a small example of this is, um, I was on a plane. I mean, I've, I've, I, I've uh, stopped going on them for a long time, actually pre-pandemic because of um, carbon emissions. So I only go when I, I really feel I have to. But um, I was wearing my face mask. The woman beside me said, looked at me and said, oh, um, do you want me to wear a face mask? And I said to her, only if you want to. And with a nice smile, and she immediately put one on. Then she looked at me, she said, you know what? This is so sensible. She said, I'm actually going to go and visit my sister um, and her newborn baby. 
I, I should really, you know, prevent myself getting um, sick too. I said, yeah. So that was just a little example. She's, she had one in her bag. She's perfectly happy to wear it, but just hadn't got to that sort of level of, of um, thinking about it. So, yeah, I think, I think that's really unfortunate, uh, that kind of wording. And that certainly did not come from any scientific advice, I can assure you. Great. So we're at two o'clock. So unfortunately, we don't have time for any more questions. But thank you so much to Susan for your excellent presentation and everyone for contributing those um, thoughtful questions. Um, the last thing left for me to do is to um, thank the organizers for organizing this event and also to signpost to the next lunch hour lecture, which is taking place on the 29th of November on the topic of whether girls education, whether that's the answer to everything. So thank you very much once more to Susan and everyone for attending. Pleasure. Thanks very much. Bye.